Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. North Korea's attendance at the Olympics puts a different spin on the games. We'll think through the reaction so far. The Machiavelli of nonviolence has died. We'll discuss the work and legacy of Gene Sharp. And on our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place, we'll hear about an international service summit with the Naperville Rotary. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. By this time tomorrow, the opening ceremony will be over and the Pyeongchang Olympics will be off and running. But South Korea's Olympics are about more than just sports with the inclusion of North Korea. Some are calling it the Peace Olympics. Others joke that it's the Pyongyang Olympics because of the way North Korea has stolen some of the spotlight. Lots of Korean Americans have been looking forward to the games. Let's talk with two Korean Americans about how they feel about the inclusion of North Korea and how it sits with them. Sik Sun is the director of KA Voice. It's a Korean-American voting organization and initiative that aims to increase political representation of Korean Chicagoans. Thanks to see you, Sik Sun. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Also with us is Jin Choi, a professor of economics at DePaul University, and he's a Korean-American who's lived in Chicago for 35 years. Thanks for joining us, Jin Choi. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I noticed that the two Koreas are going to march under a unification flag when they walk into the opening ceremonies. And it got me interested in the unification flag, so I went on Wikipedia. I started looking up about it. It was first used in 1990 for a joint ping-pong team, and then it's been used mostly in sporting events. But there's been some political meetings where it's been whipped out. And it's a white flag with a blue Korea on it. It's no line between them. It's just a Korean peninsula. I think people in the United States would go crazy if athletes didn't march under the American flag. I I wonder how you guys feel about the unification flag and what it means. Sikson, what what do you think about the unification flag? Yes, I think that, like you said, I mean, it's not the first time both Koreas uh, march into sports games under the uh, unification flag. I think that they did it on 2000 Olympic too. Uh, I think this is very symbolic for careers, especially uh, in current situations where North Korea continue to pursue uh, foreign nuclear weapons and confront the wall. So I think that, I mean, as everyone knows, the tension on the Korean Peninsula is very high. So I think that, I mean, a lot of Koreans uh, one, their government to play a role to reduce the tension in the Korean Peninsula. So that overrides the kind of nationalism of I want my flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would be a good mm-hmm. thing. Um, Jin Choi, how do you feel about the reunification flag? Yeah, I agree with uh, that comment because uh, Korea has been under the very major uh, stress of North Korean and South Korean conflict. So uh, any way to appease that uh, tension 
is very, very welcomed. But at the same time, some of the conservative Koreans feel that where is the nationalism, where is the symbol of democracy in the Korean peninsula? And uh, we feel that North Korea does not represent that. And South Korea is the only country that represents that spirit of democracy and the concept of a true republic. And thus, uh, some conservative Koreans do not like that one flag that is uh, somewhat foreign to some of them. But over the years, uh, those people kind of got familiar with the symbol, and they kind of accepted that peace may be more important than some of these ideological conflicts. It seems like a lot of the tension in South Korea about this surrounds the South Korean women's hockey team, which had to bring on a few North Korean players and bump a few of their own. And people seem to think that that was unfair. It seems to have been the main thing behind the drop in President Moon's popularity ratings. <laughs> it does seem unfair to some athletes. And the Olympics is supposed to be about athletics. How do you feel about that, Sikson? Yeah, I think that I definitely understand that feeling. But I th- I saw a kind of a generation gap of, over the issues. I think the the old generations... I think that they feel that unification is more important than their personal things. That's why they put more emphasis on having a unification team. But I think that young generation, they don't feel like they need a unification. So rather than pursuing that uh, big goal of unification, they rather pursue their personal goal. That's why I think that especially that generation, you know, it's really hard for them to achieve something in this economy. So that's why they felt uh, very betrayed by the government. Why do you uh, take away the opportunity of young people? Jin Choi, how do you feel about the hockey team and uh, the way young people are feeling in South Korea these days? I think uh, it has to be viewed from two different angles. Uh, first, uh, we can view it as a sporting event. And the other one, it has a political event. So if you look at it as a pure sporting event, obviously, uh, the 23 uh, lady hockey players in Korea is harmed by having these North Korean hockey players to come in and play. And in fact, three of them will replace the Korean teams. And thus, some of the South Korean team members feel that all the training that they had done was for nothing, and obviously there was, you know, uncomfortable feeling about that. And the public obviously understands that and sides with the, the Korean lady hockey team. But on the other hand, there is a little bit bigger picture in this particular situation, and that is uh, the political aspect of it. I view this as more like uh, Mr. Kissinger's uh, attempt of having ping-pong diplomacy with China. Uh, They are trying to make this into an event where we can find a dialogue or some kind of a harmony with uh, North Korea so that they would understand the situation that we have in South Korea and the U.S. and the rest of the world. And if we somehow use this event as a door to this dialogue, I think it is a success. At the expense, obviously, and sadly, you know, of the uh, South Korean lady hockey players. But yet, I feel that uh, I, I understand both sides, depending upon whether they view it as a sporting event or a political event. Sikson, you mentioned the younger generation and how they feel differently about unification. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it seems like they look at it as 
a burden that they don't want economically. If they're having a hard time getting a job and they're going, they think they're going to have to pay for uh, unification, that's too big a pill for them to swallow. They think that's just going to be such a raw deal. Why, why not just leave things the way they are? Yes. I mean, especially I mean, the young generation is really, I mean, having a hard time in finding jobs and doing everything. So they felt that sympathy with the women's hockey team who, you know, lost their opportunity in spite of their effort to be part of it. So I think the current Moon administration you know, failed to deliver the message why it is important to young generations. I'm talking with Sik Sun. He's executive director of KA Voice, a Korean-American voting organization, and Jin Choi, a professor of economics at DePaul University. And we're talking about the Olympics and how the inclusion of the North Korean team has changed things for South Korea. Jin Choi, do you have some thoughts about this? The young generation, they don't want to pay for unification. And it seems like they don't have the same tangible connection to the North through memories, through people they knew who lived in the North. Those are dwindling for their generation, and they just feel more removed from North Korea. Right. I absolutely agree with that comment. But yet I have to maybe uh, disagree in some of those comments uh, because uh, the older generation I'm talking about people over 60 years of age had experienced or tasted some of the North Korean uh, invasion of South Korea in the 1950s. Uh, So they are fresh and they do not like North Korea and they do not trust the North Korean regime at all. But anyone under uh, 60, let's say 40, 50, and even the younger generation that we are talking about, They have never experienced the traumatic uh, incident that uh, North Korea uh, imposed on South Korea. So over the years, uh, that memory had faded that uh, North Korea was really the instigator of the the war and so forth. But when they come to this kind of situation where they have been longing for unification with North Korea, but when the reality comes that when they do unify with them, there will be a major economic consequence. So they look at this as another thing. So to me, uh, South Koreans are looking at this unification issue with uh, two different uh, views once again. Some people will view it with their heart and saying that they are North Koreans and they are our brothers and sisters, so we should embrace them at any cost. That's one view when they think with their heart. But then when they think with their head and with more rationality, they will say that the economic disparity between North and South Korea is about 30 or even 40 times to one. That is, South Korean economic power is almost uh, 30 to 40 times larger than North Korea. And there is no way that the two countries will share or have an equal uh, economic power over the short period. So consequently, it is not just the young generation, but overall, it'll be a major problem when unification occurs, you know, quickly. So all these things are, you know, kind of, you know, entangled into the thought process. So the solution is very hard to find. And uh, that's the dilemma that everybody is uh, struggling with. And uh, I personally don't have any answer to that. But the understanding is uh, the younger generation with their heart, thinks that we have to embrace North Koreans because they are our brothers and sisters, but yet with their head, 
they think that, wow, it'll be a big cost to us. Should we really do it? And it's a dilemma. And I'm not sure how we can solve that. Is there a different attitude now because of North Korea's uh, nuclear weapons program? Does the head part of these young South Koreans, I imagine it also says, well, these guys don't really want to play the unification game. They want to hunker down. And this is a different country than it was 10 years ago. And they're going for something entirely different here. And this Olympics thing is just kind of a, a ruse to lessen tensions and buy time. Right. And this is a very smart and a strategic move by North Korea, in my opinion. They developed a nuclear weapons, but they never said that they're going to use it against South Korea in the open. And they always talked about, you know, attacking us in the USA. So South Koreans somehow feel that uh, maybe the nuclear weapons are not for us, but for somebody else. And thus, they have this complacency toward North Korea developing nuclear weapons. But slowly, they are understanding that, hey, eventually they might use it against us. And thus, we have to be on board telling North Korea that they should not develop it any further. So the sentiment, in my opinion, is slowly changing. But yet, it'll take time, because you you never know what will happen. Especially, the worrisome point that I have about North Korea is... Kim Jong-un is only 33 years old, and he has been in power for about five or six years. And I'm not really sure, you know, what to make of him. And thus, there is a great uncertainty. And that's what worries me the most. Uh, Sik-san, do you have Mm -hmm. some thoughts about that? Yes, I just want to make some comment, um, different views. I think that, I mean, uh, first, first of all, I think that there are a lot of people in Korea who think that unification is important, not only for hurt, but also in terms of economics. Because what's the uh, expense of keeping current system, I mean, the divided Korea, that costs tons of money for both Koreas. So I think that having a unification will actually benefit both Koreas in terms of like hurt and also economical. So that's a good. And also, I think right now, I think that the Korean uh, current government trying to do a different approach. For the past 10 years, uh, Korean government used kind of a confrontational approach. They, you know, pressed hard North Korea, but they got nothing, right? So that's why, I mean, the current uh, Moon administration trying to do something differently. I think that that's truly understandable. I mean, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, Trump administration also uh, criticized the previous Obama administration of handling uh, North Korea, right? And then they want to do something different. Uh, right now, I think, I think they're working on very thin ice, trying to make balance between the North Korea and the U.S. But I think the important thing is that uh, from the perspective of Korean government, keeping a peace is more important than any other things. From my perspective, I think that, I mean, right now in the United States, some people talked about military option, right? But to me, it's like it's impossible. Given the situation in Korea, I mean, North Korea went through a Korean war. Every facility, military facility, they went underground. And North Korea is mountains, tons of mountainous areas. It's impossible uh, to 
have a, a strategic limited military option. It's yeah, almost the Trump impossible. administration keeps talking about yes. a punch in the nose option, mm-hmm. which would be a limited option. Do you think that this Olympics changes that equation? I mean, it's reduced some tensions, but That's my in the end, the mm-hmm. Trump administration can come back and still yes, want right, the right. punch in the nose. Yeah. We can get back to the yeah, point where, I mean, Trump administration and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, you know, fight each other, right? But we, we are hoping that, I mean, this event, this Olympic can be a, a place where people start to having a dialogue. That's, that's my hope. Um, Jin Choi, do you think that the Olympics avoids the punch-in-the-nose strike option? I hope so. I have uh, no desire and I do not favor any kind of arms race or any kind of uh, preemptive strike on North Korea that may lead into maybe another war or any more, you know, major conflict of some form. Uh, but one thing that is really interesting about Korea is current Moon Jae-in uh, administration is trying to accommodate North Korean desire. At the same time, Trump administration is a little bit on the hard side. And I really don't know how these two seems to be different policies will lead to. And uh, hopefully having this you know, Winter Olympics in Korea and having North Koreans actually come to South Korea uh, may you know, reduce the tension. But there is, this is not a long-term solution. And thus, uh, you know, we don't know what will happen in the future. But as a short-term solution, uh, I think uh, this kind of... Uh, you know, gesture by North Korea and the South Korea, and to some extent the U.S. government, uh, is very welcomed. And uh, one thing that I sometimes worry about is, uh, you know, is North Korea sincere in whatever they are doing? And for the last 50-plus years, whatever action they, they had taken uh, has never been trusted or cannot be trusted. And thus uh, the question is, can we truly trust this uh, peaceful gesture that North Korea is showing to the world. And uh, that is a big question that I have in my mind. Jin Choi is a professor of economics at DePaul, and Sik Sun is executive director of KA Voice, a Korean-American community empowerment organization. Thank you both for joining us and talking about the Olympics in South and North Korea. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Oh yeah, the Olympic theme. Sounds sounds good once in a while, doesn't it? Gene Sharp thought of nonviolent actions as alternative weapon systems. We'll discuss the work and legacy of Gene Sharp after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
Gene Sharp was not a household name, but he was easily the most influential strategist of nonviolent tactics in recent decades. His three-volume Politics of Nonviolent Action from 1973 was translated into dozens of languages. A former defense minister in Lithuania said he would rather have that book than an atomic bomb. Another volume from 1993 was From Dictatorship to Democracy. You can download it on the Internet. It was consulted by activists in almost every uprising since 1993, from Burma to Ukraine to Tahrir Square. Gene Sharp died at the age of 90 over the weekend. His death was announced by the Albert Einstein Institution, the Boston-based nonprofit that Gene Sharp founded in 1983. Its executive director is Jamil Rakib, and she's with us now. Thanks very much for joining me. Pleasure to be here. Um, you, you know, Gene Sharp seemed to have a single-minded determination about nonviolence his whole life. Uh, he first wrote a book about Gandhi, and uh, Albert Einstein did the introduction to it, and um, uh, he went about it uh, strategically from the word go. Um, wh- where do you think that drive came from? Yeah, that's exactly right, Jerome. I think he obviously uh, had a deep sort of sensitivity to suffering and to injustice, but he was very early insistent that we don't spend time sort of condemning injustice and protesting inequality. Um, He was really consumed with uh, improving the means and the know-how to actually block injustice. Uh, And he recognized that, you know, here was a powerful means of struggle that had been used for thousands of years that wasn't well understood, and that really studying this technique uh, could really uh, provide lessons for for people who are facing injustice today. And um, I was mentioning before the break in the lead-in that he thought of nonviolent action as an alternative weapon system, uh, and he had a kind of strategic vision about nonviolence. Uh, that was he wasn't a pacifist. He was he was interested in this as just the alternative means to fight. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, he uh, in his study of nonviolent resistance, he found that overwhelmingly, when people used these means, it wasn't because they rejected violence on principled uh, grounds. They were actually looking for a powerful way to conduct struggle. Uh, And so that was really very compelling for him. And he thought, you know, perhaps there's more we can learn um, that can kind of improve this so-called weapon system that can make the struggles taking place today more effective than those uh, than, than the historic cases. You know, in watching interviews with Gene Sharp uh, over the years, he was always very careful not to take credit for uh, things that were happening out there in the world. But everybody was taking that uh, pamphlet, uh, Dictatorship to Democracy, and using it in their own situations, which I guess is what he wanted. He he said, I I don't know everything about Burma, but here are key tactics that uh, people use, and, and, you know, you should run with what you got. Right. Yes, he he was asked to write uh, write a write a book on on what the Burmese Democrats could do to uh, fight the military dictatorship there, and he said, "I don't know Burma, but I but I know dictatorship. I know what makes them possible, and I know what makes them often inevitable when people themselves are uh, weak or perceive themselves to be helpless or powerless. So, how do you sort of 
simultaneously empower people to take action that's effective and also uh, work to systematically undermine uh, opponents. Um, so that was the sort of uh, um, kind of basic concept of from dictatorship to democracy. And it was heavily, you know, really, uh, I think the, the key piece of this work that has been so compelling for people uh, that, that I've observed over the 16 years I've worked with him, and that was really the key piece of why it was compelling for me was the self-reliance. It's so central to this. It's really, um, you know, uh, that people hold great power uh, and that what we do or what we refuse to do uh, can really make a difference. And so I think that's his main legacy, really showing us we have power and that we can act effectively and that, uh, you know, uh, and that can have great consequences. We're talking about Jean Sharp, who died at the age of 90 over the weekend. I'm talking with Jamila Rakib. She's executive director of the Jean Sharp or the uh, Albert Einstein Institution, which Jean Sharp founded. And with me here in the studio is Fabricio Balcazar. He's a professor in the Department of Disability and Human Development at the University of Illinois. He's a community psychologist and has been influenced by Jean Sharp's work. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Glad to be here. How do, you, how do you take what we're talking about here and this kind of um, empowerment thing? And it's influenced people in lots of different walks of life. We're talking about a political um, influence. Uh, how did it work for you? Absolutely. In my case, as a community psychologist, we look at recognize the importance of clinical training and services for people who have those needs. But we move beyond that to the necessity to do promotion of interventions that can change people's lives and do prevention and address issues of oppression, marginalization, discrimination, segregation, injustice, etc. with the intent of building a world that is more just and improving the quality of life of people and promoting liberation. So Professor Sharp's view lies exactly at the heart of what is it that we want to do. He thinks people have more power than they know, and you're working to convince them of that. <laughs> this is one of the most difficult aspects of the work that people do in communities and individually with people, which is to help them realize the potential that they have to transform their own lives and their own social reality. And I believe Professor Sharp was convinced, and it's clear to him, that people were able to do this. The problem is that getting there is not easy, and it's a challenge, and most people are too oppressed or too alienated in order to be able to realize that they have that capacity to change. Uh, Jamila Rakib, you you did a TED Talk uh, a year or two ago, and you took out the 198 tactics that James Sharp had to uh, to kind of uh, do nonviolent actions. And these are the kind of empowerment tools, the practical tools, when you're trying to ignite someone to realize they can do more than they think. Uh, he was his genius, I imagine, was just laying it out there and saying, "Here are the, here's all the things you can do. Look." That's exactly right, and I think it's been it's been really amazing to see how people react to that list um, because after all, it is it is just a list. But I think it awakens people's imaginations that there's so much we can do, and that 
we can move beyond simply protesting, holding a sign, expressing dissatisfaction, uh, and that there's this sort of multi multitude of individual sort of uh, methods that have been used historically. And, and that's what, that's what you know, Jean did, is, is really sort of collect these individual methods um, by, you know, through his study of, of, of history. And, and that's how he viewed himself as a really historian and synthesizer of sorts, not someone who invented this, but really someone who's just learning from thousands of uh, years of history. Uh, and the, yeah, the, the methods are, are, are a really sort of incredible empowerment tool just in, in understanding these all these things you can do. Um, Jamila, as someone who teaches this all the time, uh, I think people sometimes say, well, there are protest movements that are that are failures out there and they don't work. And they say, well, the Occupy movement, it had no leadership. It didn't have any goals. It was just a great big long sit-in. Uh, and other movements have a little more strategic uh, vision and, and develop uh, strategic ideas. Um, are there things out there that you're thinking about today as, as people talk about things that I can do out there in the world uh, to be a, a better campaigner? Uh, what, what should people be doing? Sure. I think Gene Sharp would say that um, stop and think uh, and learn as much as you can about uh, the issues, about your own society, about um, uh, about the communities uh, that you're working with, uh, and also learn about the dynamics of this type of struggle. Uh, it's really been neglected. It's, there's a lot we don't understand about how it works. Uh, and you can't just declare yourself nonviolent and think that automatically or magically you're going to be successful. Uh, obviously, nonviolent struggle is a complex type of struggle. It's a complex technique. It demands that the people participating in it, that are taking part, it's leadership, that it has certain skills and capacities and knowledge. Uh, and so I think that that, that is extremely important for, for people who are exploring this. Um, and, you know, we've seen this sort of awakening in our own country as people uh, wonder, you know, are asking what, are, what is our role in this in, in protecting our democratic institutions. Uh, and so they are looking to this analysis. And um, I think that the understanding that civil society groups, that uh, community groups need to be strengthened, um, you know, uh, is, 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 a, is a very, very important sort of prerequisite step that, that you don't just sort of jump into action and kind of undermine systems, but there is this first stage of empowerment and social political empowerment uh, in our communities. And, and that's very encouraging to see in our country and around the world today. Um, Fabricio, do you have any strategies you think are um, good at awakening people and getting them on a, a strategic footing for success? Yes, I have been inspired by the work of Paulo Freire, the educator from Brazil, that talk about the development of critical awareness and critical consciousness. And he emphasized strategies like study circles where people will come together to jointly analyze what was happening in their lives, the context and factors in, in their experiences that will let them to move away from feeling victimized to understanding the role of politics, money, and everything in their life. And I think this is a prerequisite, developing critical understanding, not only of what's going on and the power relationship in people's lives, but most importantly, the need and capacity of each individual to do something about it. Because that's, I think, what Professor Sharp was most interested in people doing, is taking action. But you need this critical awareness and understanding as a prerequisite to doing that. 
Uh, it's interesting, the, the idea of smaller groups, and uh, Gene Sharp was into decentralization, too. If you've got a big you know, big group, and you, I mean, like, the Women's March is a really big group, you, you've got to decentralize and go do your own thing, and they went and decentralized and are trying to do their own thing and, and do their own strategies. Um, that That's something you've um, got to think through consciously, right, Jamila? Absolutely. And I think this was sort of one of the misconceptions about nonviolent resistance that you somehow need a sort of centralized leadership. You need a, a you know, a Mahatma or a, a Gandhi, a charismatic figure. And, 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 and Jean's study of history um, is very different. It's contrary to that. You often can't identify the leadership, but it does exist. Um, so uh, I think that's been, that's been something we've also seen in the recent uprisings, um, that uh, as knowledge becomes more available to more people than the need for a centralized leadership uh, lessons. Um, and so this is why access to information and knowledge is so key. So we know what are the requirements of effectiveness and that it need not come from a sort of singular leadership. That that's something we all can understand by, you know, uh, studying the, the issues in our society and, and uh, what's required from us to participate in effective action. Um, Jamila, what is going to happen with the Einstein Institution now? You and Jean, and uh, it was a small group of you there at the Einstein Institution. Um, what's next for you guys? Well, we have a commitment to this work. Um, the demand is uh, very high, um, and so we are working to, to not only continue this work, but to work to expand it. Um, and so that's what the, the board has committed to do and, and to doing, to continue to disseminate these ideas um, and to disseminate the kind of uh, written material. But, but not only that, because uh, something that's a key part of this work is that nonviolent resistance is not a sort of something that's sort of set in stone and fossilized. It's something that is, needs continuous refinement and improvement and research uh, and expansion. And so our goal is to make sure that, uh, you know, we innovate the technique uh, so that it can respond to, to uh, you know, modern-day challenges. Uh, Jamila Rakib is executive director of the Albert Einstein Institution, founded in 1983 by Jean Sharp, who died over the weekend at the age of 90. And if you haven't had a chance to see her uh, TED Talk, it is excellent on nonviolence. I hope you check it out on TED. It was one of the 10 best talks of the year and all that. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Jamila Rakib, and good luck in the future. Thank you so much, Jerome. And Fabricio Balcazar is a professor in Department of Disabilities and Human Development at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a community psychologist. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, how you found inspiration from Gene Sharp. I am honored. Thank you, Jeroen. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment, and you'll find out about an international sum, sum, service summit in Naperville. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. And today I'm going to talk with the two co-chairs of the Naperville Rotary Club's International Service Committee. They're hosting an international service summit on Saturday. Uta Potgieter is here. She's a co-chair there in uh, the Naperville Rotary Club. Nice to meet you. Thank you. And it's great to see Chuck Newman, who's a co-chair of the Naperville Rotary Club's uh, International Service Committee as well. And he's uh, an architect, and he's president of Schools for Children of the World, an organization that uh, we've talked with before. Nice to see you. It's great to see you again. Thank you. Um, Why did you want to do this? Why did you want to have an international service summit? I think when I was chairing the International Service Committee uh, last year, and uh, I met with Chuck, and uh, he spoke about this uh, event that he had as a vision, I could really see it happening. And I said to Chuck, we're going to take this on, and it's going to be a great event. Um, Very often, um, all of the service organizations, they work very much, you know, on their own, in a silo, and never really has it been done to bring them together and to share um, knowledge, resources, uh, and networking opportunities. Um, And so, yeah, this is why we are doing it. And Chuck, tell me about the kind of people you think should come to the International Service Summit. Oh, well, that's great. Uh, I mean, number one, we're looking for other organizations in in the area that are doing international projects, Um, again, for potential collaboration and sharing ideas and resources. But we're also looking for um, students in middle school or high school who are interested maybe getting involved and learning more about what these organizations are doing and maybe helping out, maybe going and joining them on trips to other countries. Um, as well as others who might be retirees or people in the community who've never been involved in an international project. And they can come to this event and there'll be 30 different organizations that are doing international projects. They might find something that interests them and that they would like to become more involved in. Uh, so the third, you've got 30 groups. There's also going to be a keynote speaker at the event. And uh, she sounds like a really interesting person. Uh, who's that? Yes, we are so excited that Atia Abawi uh, will be our keynote speaker. And uh, she is a foreign correspondent as well as acclaimed author. And her newest book that she will be coming to speak about, A Land of Permanent Goodbyes, uh, talk about the Syrian refugee crisis, but seen through the eyes of a family and particularly a teenage boy, Tarek. Uh, They're making their journey from Syria to Greece, uh, to Germany. So I think that really is a very inspiring story and uh, it really places a a very human eye on the refugee crisis. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald and we're talking with two of the co-chairs of the Naperville Rotary Club and we're discussing their International Service Summit. It's coming up on Saturday. It's at the NIU Conference Center in Naperville. I'm going to be there and I'm going to moderate the uh, panel discussion at 1030. It should be a lot of fun. I I imagine there are um, some a lot of people say, well, service organizations sometimes are, you know how can they be most effective? Are they are they really 
making things that are, are going to create uh, a permanent change, or do they sometimes get caught up in in things where it's more about um, them going down there and, and seeing what the world is like? Is that the most important feature of the service project? Um, how do how do you think? Um, People discuss this amongst themselves, Chuck. Boy, I'll tell you, that is such a great question. And first of all, I want to thank you for being there. You're going to be just a great addition to our event on Saturday. I'm super excited to see all these nice people. (laughs) So that's really a lot of what our panel discussion is going to be about. That's part of the the conference. Uh, We have a number of people who are involved in in service organizations and – and we're really going to concentrate on on community assessments and, and learning more about what the community needs versus what you want to do to help them. Um, um, because it is a, a there are a lot of people who really want to help, and they go down uh, to another country with an idea of how they're going to help, and. Um, all of a sudden, they realize, number one, that what they had in mind is not what the community needs or it's not on their priority. Um, and and so um, they really need to spend time really meeting with the community, determining what they need and determining what what technical expertise they have and how they can be most helpful. Now, Chuck, you yourself have been doing this for like 20 years. You are an architect who helps build schools around the world in different places. So I imagine you see this all the time. We do. And we see that where where organizations have come into a community and they'll build something. And within five or ten years, it's been abandoned because the community never bought into it. Um, I've got a specific example right now that I'm really excited about. We happen to be the architects for St. Xavier University on the south side of Chicago. And they have graduate nurses that have been going to Belize for a number of countries. And, and they would build like buildings, okay, uh, as part of their two-week service project every year. Uh, and um, I met with uh, John Bass, the vice president uh, at St. Xavier, and we talked about an idea where uh, starting this uh, May, as a matter of fact, we're going to have a number of graduate nursing students going to Honduras, and they'll go to some of the more rural schools that we've built. They'll be partnering with doctors in Honduras, and they'll be providing medical services for children who have never had seen a medical practitioner before. Uh, and so from my perspective, uh, these nurses are going to, to Honduras. They're using their expertise to really help the people, and I think that they'll benefit from them because they're going to be providing services uh, in in a non-antiseptic environment that they're so used to in the United States, like a clinic or a hospital. And they're going to have to think on their feet, and they're going to see things in Honduras that they would probably never see in the United States. So I think it's going to be a great benefit to both. And it's just kind of repurposing uh, their time and expertise to something that they can really help with. And they don't have to learn how to use a circular saw. (laughs) Or nail and nail. (laughs) Goodness knows I would be no good at that. Uh, So, I mean, that's a perfect example of the kind of thing. Sometimes people get caught up in doing things that they should be doing something else. They should be doing the, the thing that they're most at home with that people really need. 
there are, well, as you know, there are uh, so many needs in the world, you know, particularly when you go to developing countries. And, and there are, everyone has things that they have expertise in. And, and it's just identifying those things that you can provide the greatest help and listening to the people because they will tell you what their needs are and how you can help. I'm talking with Chuck, Chuck Newman and Uta Potgater. She is the, they are co-chairs of the Rotary Club in Naperville, their International Service Committee. Um, tell us a little bit about the Rotary Club in Naperville, Uta. There's, um, some people may not be familiar with Rotary Clubs at all. Uh, what, what do they do? Yes, uh, Jerome, thank you for asking that. Um, the Rotary uh, International is actually the biggest humanitarian organization uh, in the world, and we have 32,000 clubs throughout the world um, with uh, more than a million uh, members. And uh, the Rotary Club of Naperville, and maybe I can just talk about, you know, from my own perspective, um, I joined about three years ago, and um, I really uh, wanted to get to know people in Naperville. And the Rotary Club of Naperville have made, and their members have made, a huge impact in the community there. Um, we regularly uh, have our festival, uh, which is a very important fundraiser, and the monies go to local community groups. Um, and we are very proud of the work that is continuously done by, by our club. Uh, and then we are very active in terms of international uh, we truly have an international group, uh, people born in Haiti, myself from South Africa, uh, people born in America. I saw my friend Prakash Tata is going to be there at the, yes. at the Absolutely. event on Saturday. Absolutely. <laughs> I've had on the program and see at uh, events in the Indian-American community. Yes, and um, uh, Prakash is actually still in India, and he, he plays a huge role for us in the International Service Committee. But he has um, uh, gotten the word out for us. So uh, we are having uh, three of our exhibitors are actually going to exhibit their projects uh, that that's busy taking place in India. So that's great. And it sounds like fun. And, um, you know, I hope people will come out. And it, this is at the NIU Conference Center, Chuck? Yes, it's uh, on Deal Road in Naperville at the NIU campus. Uh, and we would love to have lots of people come out because that's really where uh, people are able to see what's going on, exchange ideas, learn about opportunities to get involved, uh, and uh, uh, we would love to see everybody come out. And it starts in the morning uh, on Saturday yes. and runs, and you'll be still have some of your afternoon left if you come. Yes, it starts at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the program starts at 9, uh, and the event will be over by 1 o'clock, uh, and there will be plenty of time for people to visit with all the different groups that are exhibiting their projects there. So we will welcome everybody. Uh, and it's $20 for attendance. It's $20, $5 for students. Uh, what happens if this is a smashing success and you have to do it again? Our plan is that this is the first – of an annual event. So we hope to have this uh, um, every year, and we have plans to make it even bigger in the future. So you would hope to gel with uh, lots of organizations who are doing service projects and just get more gravity and bring them all in. Absolutely. So that's like faith organizations. There's lots of faith organizations out there doing Absolutely. service projects. 
bring them on, huh? Oh, that's that's great. And we do have uh, representatives from every different faith that are going to be there Saturday, and they're very welcome. And Chuck Newman is co-chair of the Rotary Club of Naperville's International Service Committee. He's founder and CEO of Newman Architecture in Naperville, and he is co-founder of President uh, and, co- and president of Schools for Children of the World, which has built uh, 120, 130 schools. We've built about 120 schools, worked with communities, 120 schools worldwide. And they've got their own website as well if you want to look them up. And it's great seeing you, Chuck Newman. And Uta Potgieter is the co-chair of the Rotary Club of Naperville's International Service Committee as well. And um, thanks very much for joining us. And I look forward to seeing you on Saturday. And we'll have a great time and hopefully do some good. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jerome. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to meet the executive director of the National Public Housing Museum. They have an exhibit about the history of housing as a human right on its opening on the west side. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview was produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, Amber Fisher, and Meha Ahmed. And thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance, Mike Gilmore for engineering, and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.